Hear the word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamer, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade. The word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, As we turn our attention now to your word, we ask that you would be here with us. Would you please do what no preacher can do and would you apply your word to your people through your spirit? Please come and talk to us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In 2008, a strange thing started happening in Paris. Well, on a particular bridge in Paris, the Pont des Art Bridge. And I'm glad William's not here to correct me on that. Uh, on this bridge, something that people in Paris had never seen kind of popped up overnight. Now, let me explain what happened. Two years before this, uh, an Italian romantic young adult novel was made into a movie. And so this craze started that swept all throughout Rome and eventually Europe, and it even made its way to the States. You you may have have seen this. People would take a lock, and they would write their initials and their partner's initials on the lock. Then they would go to a bridge, and they would lock the lock onto the bridge, and they'd take the keys, and they'd throw it off into there. Uh, And the symbolism's clear. 
our love is like a lock without a key, fixed forever, unbreakable. But there was a problem. Because shockingly, thousands of locks actually create a lot of weight. And it turns out that after seven years of being the preeminent place in the entire world for people to hang their love locks, the bridge actually could not stand up to the weight. And so the Parisian government not only made it illegal, but they cut off every single one of those locks that were put there. Now, it's a little bit of a silly story showing how we think things might be permanent that that are not actually permanent. A declaration of love via master lock. But the principle is seen in the world all around us. Because nothing that we expect to last actually does. Especially not promises. Because those are just words. Promises are easily broken, colloquial wisdom tells us. Put no stock in the words of men. It's the backbone of an idea that would even necessitate putting a lock onto a bridge. Or, if you're from around this area, carving initials and a heart into a tree. There has to be more than just a promise. There has to be something that lasts, that we can see. We'll see in our text today is is anything but... We will see an abiding promise. We will see a sure promise. What we will see is that in the midst of your own suffering and sin, God's gracious promises endure. In the midst of your own suffering and sin, God's gracious promises endure. And we'll see this play out in three scenes. The grateful expedition, verses 1 through 4. The fateful division, verses 5 through 13, and the gainful vision, verses 14 through 18. The grateful expedition, the fateful division, and the gainful vision. So let us begin with the grateful expedition, verse 1 in our text. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Okay, contextually, here's where we're following right on the heel of Pastor Craig's sermon from last week. We see Abram here kicked out of Egypt. If you call, he had fled to Egypt and then sold his wife to Pharaoh. And following this egregious betrayal by Abram, God punishes Egypt. And then Abram and Sarah are reunited. And this story should be ringing some alarm bells. It should sound familiar to us, even if we're not particularly familiar with this particular story. Let's go over the high points. God's people flee to Egypt during a time of drought. God then curses the Egyptian people. Ultimately, this leading to the Pharaoh sending away God's people into the desert with material blessings reaped from Egypt. Oh, to be sure, friends, there are differences between this exodus and the exodus. But we cannot toss aside the similarities just because there are differences. In many ways, this exodus journey prefigures the exodus. The promise that Abram later receives is certainly a huge factor in the exodus narrative. Verse 2. Now Abram is very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, 
between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. First, I want to draw your attention to the end of this passage here. After Abram returns to where he fled from, he calls upon the Lord. Now, we are not told what he said to the Lord. But friends, it does not take much imagination to reason through the possibilities. Perhaps he made sacrifices for thanksgiving of a safe journey. Perhaps he thanked God for the return of his wife. Perhaps for all the wealth he'd accumulated in Egypt. More likely than not, he made sacrifices for all of those things and repentance for disobeying God, for leaving in the first place, for abandoning his wife. But this begs the question of us. When we see him worshiping, we must ask, why? Why? Why did Abram worship? Why did he thank God for things? Why ask for forgiveness? Maybe to avoid the plague that was brought on Pharaoh's house? It's possible. Certainly possible. But there was no regulation for how he ought to worship. There's no written demand that he does need to worship. Abraham does not have the book of Leviticus to explain what proper worship looks like. Rather, this seems to be the natural outpouring of his heart. Why did Abram worship God? Because he had experienced the kindness of God. Beloved of God, you too have every reason to worship. Because my dear friends, you too have experienced the kindness of God. And you realize it in an even greater sense than Abram did. You say to me, but Riker, God doesn't want to hear from me. If you knew what I did this week, how I spoke to my children, how little I prayed, how quickly I snapped at my wife, how easily I gave in to temptation, how often I refused God's means of grace. If you knew, Riker, you couldn't possibly say that to me. Well, friends, you're right. You're right, I don't know. But I am guessing you did not literally sell your spouse in an act of human trafficking. So there's that. But you're also dead wrong. Because if I did know, if I really knew exactly how you had fallen short of the mark, I would say it all the louder. Because in the midst of your own sin, God's promises to you endure. That is God's call to you this morning. It is a call to Peter after he denies Christ. To Paul after he persecutes the church. The call to sinners and tax collectors. The call to the sorry excuse for a husband that Abram is. It is God's call to you, specifically to you. If you are weary and heavy laden with your sin, do not let Satan fool you. You bear it no more. Christ has taken it from you. You cannot hold on to it. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the loving Father, he is calling you to repent, to give him thanks, because his desire is to richly bless you. Look at how he's blessed Abram, even Abram. Now to be sure, Abram's blessings here are material. I am not saying that yours will be. Abram 
just like Israel will, flourished in Egypt. In Egypt, where he was because he rebelled against God. Even in the midst of his rebellion, God was blessing him. Look at this staggering list of what he has. Flocks, which refers to all kinds of animals. And according to some commentators, possibly even slaves. And most shockingly, silver and gold, which is not shocking to us because we think of wealth in terms of precious metals. But this is the first time in the Bible that any one person is referred to as having the wealth of precious metal. Abram was unbelievably wealthy, unprecedentedly wealthy. And yet, the one thing that would provide any sense of meaning to his wealth was missing. Because what good is it to store up all the treasures on earth if there is no heir to pass it on to? And currently, there is no true heir. But there is Lot. Not for long. Look with me as we move from the grateful expedition to the fateful division. Now verses 5 through 13. And Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land recall friends that this land had recently gone through a radical drought how recently We're not told. Some commentators think that Abram left months ago. Others say that he dwelt in Egypt for years. Either way, this land is already not ideal for grazing in the best of times. And this is certainly not that. Especially given the unbelievable wealth and responsibility that comes with it of Abram and Lot. Wealth, it was so great that their herdsmen were fighting, perhaps physically, over grazing lands for their animals. This is made even worse, compounded, when Moses includes that Lot and Abram do not have the land to themselves. The Canaanites and the Perizzites are already there, which means that Abram and Lot are left the land that has yet to be taken. They get the leftovers, which is just not enough to support their great blessings. And so they have two options. Really, there are two options. One, cast aside what God has given them and remain together. Two, retain what God has given them and part ways. Here's what is happening, friends. God himself is actually driving Abram and Lot apart. He is the one who blessed them. And the text never, ever even hints at them considering rejecting what God has given to them. Instead, verse eight, Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go left. Abram lovingly and humbly nips this problem in the bud. He does not allow it to fester from a conflict between herdsmen all the way up to a conflict between he and Lot. Instead, Abram gives Lot 
a choice and avoids further conflict. Friends, it reminds me of nothing as much as the father and the prodigal son. Abram here telling Lot, do whatever you please and I'll have whatever's left afterwards. You can see how much he loves Lot. Many traditions have held that Abram actually adopted Lot and it's certainly possible. This deference that Abram is making to Lot is amazing. Think of how often you essentially demand your own way in completely petty matters. Think of how small those stakes really are. It may be something as small as insisting on what, when, or where you eat. Dictating your schedule around a particular thing. Sorry, honey, we can't have them over. The Seahawks are on this afternoon. Or whose turn it is to get the kids dressed. Whose job it is to do a certain chore. And on and on and on. And none of it makes any difference ultimately. How many of the things that we bicker about will actually have any bearing on that great and final day? Other than your sinful selfishness, apart from the lack of love that our petty disputes display, it won't be significant at all. It'll be like chaff on the wind because it does not matter. But here, Abram defers to his nephew on something that has massive ramifications. The text seems to tell us that these two options are not even close to equal. And the difference actually makes a difference. Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. One of my favorite things about having a child approaching school-aged is the car games we get to play. You know what I'm talking about. I spy, right? 20 questions, counting games, uh, saying every word you can think of that starts with a letter. Or, or that rhymes with another word. Or one of my favorite opposites. I especially love playing opposites with homonyms. Right? Stuff like light, dark, light, uh, heavy, yeah. Right, left, right, uh, wrong. It's good because it forces you to think of that word in a different context than the way it naturally hits your ears. And I promise I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. Because Lot is a lot like that. He seems to be used in, in different ways in different passages. And about every commentator that I read agrees that, that Lot is the opposite of Abram in this story. And so some go as far as to label Lot wicked and assume that all of his choices are out of wickedness. The problem is that Peter calls Lot righteous. So which is it? Is he righteous or the opposite of righteous Abraham? And he's both. But what he's the opposite of isn't the righteousness. He's the opposite because Abram is selfless in this story. Lot is selfish. When Abram defers to the younger, Lot seizes the initiative. He's the opposite in many ways, but we cannot take it a step too far and assume he's the opposite in all ways. To be sure, Lot ought to have deferred back to Abram. It would have been the proper thing for him to do, 
But really, honestly, you cannot blame him for the choice that he made. Lot has a real responsibility to take care of his flocks and the men who oversees his flocks. Real lives hang in the balance. All things being equal, you would have made exactly the same choice. Hmm, let's see. Should I choose the reject of the scab lands here or the lush Jordan Valley? Hmm, the place that reminds me of a desert, reminds me of the Garden of Eden. Where should I take my herds to eat? It's not a trick question. It's an easy answer. The Jordan is the obvious choice, helped by the fact that it's even familiar. See, the Jordan would overrun its banks annually and water the whole valley, just like the Nile did in Egypt. So it is even like the land of Egypt, lush, verdant, familiar. We would kid ourselves to choose, to think that we would choose anything different. Would you like the window seat on a flight to New York, or would you like to ride with the luggage on a Greyhound bus? Uh, is, is that window seat really an option? Can we talk about that, please? Yeah, it is a no-brainer. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. At least it seemed like a no-brainer. But Lot does not realize what trouble he has gotten himself into yet. And you will get to hear about that next week, so no spoilers, except for what Moses already includes here. What appeared like the Garden of Eden was really full of wicked people. The neighborhood is nice, but you couldn't do worse for neighbors. In verse 10, God is going to destroy that area. But other than that, other than that, it's a really, really nice place to live. Plenty of grazing for your animals, a really nice river nearby. Excuse me, can we go back to the God destroying stuff, please? Here's the problem with making real choices in real time with your really finite knowledge. You can't go back to that part. It is easy to look backwards and condemn choices that don't work out. However, if Lot knew anything about Sodom, it was hearsay. And he probably told himself what you would tell yourself. Of course, the company is evil, but I won't be shaped by it. Look, I know I'll have no meaningful community at college, and it's like known as a party school, but I'll stay on the straight and narrow. I, I, it's a full ride scholarship. How could I say no? Maybe. Certainly possible. I very much doubt either of those places will be destroyed by God in a terrifying display of his power. But before you let the what could be's tempt you into making a decision, you'll regret looking back on it. Seek counsel, friends. That is what Lot fails to do. He looks and he chooses. And he had Abram right there. But he doesn't even pause for a moment to ask his uncle who talks to God what he should do. He simply leaves for the literal greener pastures. And now, for the very first time, Abram is actually entirely apart from his father's house. The Lord has worked in such a way to bring about obedience to the very first command Abraham, Abram was ever given. So we now move from the faithful division into our third and final scene, the gainful vision. 
Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamer which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. It is so easy for us in a story like this to presume that Abram had no feeling here. But Abram has just lost a family member, his closest family member. To be sure, Lot is still alive, but if you know how the story plays out, think of how Abram intercedes for Lot. Think of what he does risking himself and other people for Lot. And now Lot is gone from him. So Abram is without a doubt downcast. He has lost the very last of his family that has always been there with him. But there is blessing because he now knows what land God has given to him. It was one of the two parts of the promise. He would receive land and a descendant. And now Abram knows what land. To be sure, he does not have it yet. The Canaanites and the Perizzites are still living there. But he knows where now. God promises to give him this land. And so Abram goes and settles near the oaks of Mamer and there builds an altar. This is what God's people have always done. It is what we still do. We create places for his worship. Abram goes in obedience, and when he arrives, undoubtedly still mourning the loss of Lot, he worships. This is the pattern of scripture, friends. No matter the depth of suffering, God's people worship. To be sure, to be sure, I do not know the depth of your suffering. I cannot understand how you have been hurt and even still are hurting. I'm sure that if I swap places with some of you, I could not have dragged myself to church this morning. I am certain of it. I have not hurt like you hurt. So how on earth can I tell you to worship? Because you know, beloved, that Christ knows your suffering. You know that the Holy Spirit is with you in the midst of your suffering. And you know that in the midst of your own suffering, God's gracious promises to you endure. So God now promises to Abraham that which seems entirely impossible. To be sure, God could have easily driven out the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Why not? Abraham knows of the flood account. For centuries, Jewish rabbis and historians and textual critics have held that he actually was raised in Noah's household with Noah as the patriarch. God destroying nations is not shocking to Abram. No, it is the promise of an offspring. And an offspring that is somehow many offspring. It is even more shocking than Abram fully realizes. To be sure, to be sure, in a way, this is a promise of Isaac and all of Israel that would follow. But not ultimately, friends. Referencing this promise and all the others that God makes to Abram, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, the promised offspring is Christ. And so here, 
the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity prior to his incarnation, speaks to Abram and promises him himself. He is the fulfillment of the promise. It is what he offers to you this morning, himself. And here everywhere Abram walked and everywhere that he didn't will be Christ's. Heaven and earth will one day be free of death and sin will be no more. All will finally be and fully be his and he will be ours. Christ will be made as the dust of the earth. In the church, his body, and you who are shaped into his image, who are indwelled with his Holy Spirit, in the church universal from all times and all places, he is uncountable. As the dust of the earth cannot be counted, neither can his church. And yet, and yet, that is not the only way he is made as the dust of the earth. Because Christ, the one to whom these promises point, is the second Adam. And to Adam, God said, from dust you came and to dust you shall return, for you are dust. And so Christ, though free from the sin that demands the sting of death, came under the penalty of death, just like Adam. And as a blessing to all peoples, the promised offspring of Abram hung on a Roman cross as the sins that condemn you to death were placed on him instead. And yet, friends, there is a difference between Christ and Adam. Thanks be to God. A difference that is far greater than the similarities because Jesus did not return to dust. He knew no decay. He rose again on the third day, defeating death and sin. He took his life back up. And through his resurrection, he promises you that you too have hope of eternal life and peace in this life through the gift of his spirit. Dear friends, in the midst of your own suffering, never ever forget that God's gracious promises to you endure. In the midst of your own suffering and sin, God's gracious promises to you endure. May we be a people who cling to these promises, especially as we suffer from our sins and the sins of others this side of the new Canaan. May we take our sins to him and take his yoke upon ourselves and may we never forget that in the darkest nights of our souls, when there seems to be no light, when your bitter tears seem to overwhelm and drown you, friends, Christ is there. He is with you even there. Would you pray with me? Blessed Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you speak to your people through your word. Please bring repentance to those who labor in sin. Please bring comfort to those who suffer in this fallen world. Please build in all of us a vibrant and abiding hope in your promises revealed to us through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.